are listening to Ethnic Life Story, Trail of Trees, Episode 18, Cyril Arnold Lloyd Vermouten. Ethnic Life Story, Trail of Trees, is a tribute project started by Springfield businessman Jim Malden in the early 2000s. Then, more than a decade later, the project reached Friends of the Garden at Nathaniel Green Close Memorial Park in Springfield, Missouri. Black gum trees were planted in 2012 at the northern edge of the park and symbolized the legacy left by ethnic community leaders. Each tree stands for an Ozark citizen who has left a lasting positive impact on their community through service, generosity, and tenacity. Each story is maintained and immortalized by a story keeper who has volunteered to ensure the legacy of the storyteller lives on. I have many names in my given name. Lawrence, my brother, was Christian straight off with one name when he was born. When I came, I was given three. I've used all three names. Lloyd is of our family heritage, so the family has always called me Lloyd. My friends called me Cyril, and at church they called me Arnold. My mother's maiden name was Bans, but the original family name was Lloyd. They came over to South Africa from Wales in 1820. Vermouten is a Dutch name, but it used to be French. Vermoutens used to be the rulers from the south of France. I was born July 3, 1929, in a hospital in Butford West, Cape, South Africa. The family doctor delivered me. My birth was normal, but my brother's wasn't. He had a very weak heart, and they did not expect him to live. Later on, he got rheumatic fever, which was quite dangerous in those days. He spent quite some time in the hospital during his life as well. He is four and a half years older than me. The part of South Africa in which I grew up was rural. Two languages were spoken, English and Afrikaans. The year 1910 saw the formation of different provinces that became the Union of South Africa. Three of the leaders of the country were General Botha, General Herzog, and General Smuts. The 31st of May is Union Day. That stayed with us until the early 60s when the country became a republic. We broke away from England and became a complete republic much in the same way the U.S. did from England. There were ten native languages in South Africa. Each tribe hated the other tribe, so there was no union among the Africans. The strongest and biggest tribe was the Zulus, a warlike nation. Dengan was the chief. The Zulus were very cruel and used to wipe out a lot of their enemies. At one time, the Afrikaans' trekkers were coming out of Durban and got near Vrachid. They set up camp with all their wagons in a circle. The chief invited them to come to a feast. So the leaders of the trekkers went along and were persuaded to leave their guns with their horses. They came in, the Zulus were dancing, and all of a sudden the trekkers noticed that buried under the ground were all of their spears. The leaders of all the trekkers were killed. 
The camp of the trekkers was right next to the river, and the Zulus came over in the thousands and attacked with spears. The trekkers used guns. The river flowed red with blood. It was called the Battle of Blood River. The trekkers prayed that if the Lord gave them victory, they would remember this day and keep it as a holiday thereafter. The day they won the battle was the 16th of December and is known as Dingan's Day. The area in which I lived, Cape Province, did not really have any tribes. The people who came down and lived in this area spoke mainly Afrikaans. There was a mixture of many races in this area. A lot of people in South Africa were farmers, but a great many also worked in the mining industries. There are big mines, including coal, iron ore, copper, diamonds, gold, platinum, semi-precious stones, and various other minerals. Mainly, the men worked while the women stayed home with the children. Most families had cars, but there were also buses and trains. Later came aircraft. My father, Christian, was a tall man, just over six feet. He had brown hair and blue eyes. My mother had dark brown hair, but I don't recall the color of her eyes. She had one sister who was a school teacher. Their father was a lawyer in Christiana. My mother was born in Queenstown, but she lived more in Christiana. My father had a sister who lived at Cirrus on a farm and two brothers, Matt in Port Elizabeth and Dirk in Johannesburg. I saw my aunts and uncles fairly often, but mostly my aunt. My father wasn't a strict father. My mother was gentle, and she liked to sing. She liked classical music. She died of abdominal cancer when I was 14, and my father died of lung cancer in his late 70s. He was quite a smoker, and it caught up with him eventually. I have always felt close to my brother. He used to encourage me quite a lot, and he was always there for me. When I left home, he was the one who kept in contact. It was difficult when he passed away. We lived in the same house most of my childhood. After Butefort West, we moved near Worcester and then to Port Elizabeth. I also went to school at Craddock. At school, I stuttered badly and was extremely shy. When I needed to speak, I would kick the calf of my leg to get the first word out. At home for me, a normal day was waking up and then being in a rush. I was trying to get dressed, have a quick breakfast, and then walk to school, which was about a mile away. My breakfast was porridge, fruit, and a cup of coffee. The coffee began when I was about 11. I always liked to get to school early, so I would have time to play with my friends. We used to love watching the ants and all the things that they did. My brother and I played household games because he wasn't very active. In the evenings, after the meal, most of the kids would get together on the corner on the road under the street lamp and play hopscotch. We had no television, but we did have radios with excellent stories so you could actually picture the whole scene. My father taught me to play rugby. He had played only a little, but he knew the game and the rules and how to teach me. Rugby is much tougher than football. It was a very satisfying game, and I really enjoyed it. South Africans have been the world leaders in rugby for quite a number of years. In my earlier school years, there were two grades together in a classroom. You would be taught, and then while the other group was being taught, you had work to do. When you got higher, there were individual grades. We called them standards. 
My math teacher was my favorite. I was always good in math, and he would say to me, you can be what you want to be. He's the only teacher I remember. School started at 8 a.m. and ran until 2 in the afternoon. After school, we often played sports. I did not have a great deal of homework. I probably had less than my kids had, unless I just didn't do it. I didn't have many chores because I got home late from sports. I would play cards with family and friends. We also played a lot of checkers. My friends and I would also make slingshots with the V-shaped bottom made of wood and an elastic string to shoot the stone and hit birds or rabbits. I wasn't very good. One of the highlights I remember growing up was the Sunday school picnic. We used to go by train about 15 miles and then get out at a little siding where there were lots of trees and a little stream. It was an ideal place for picnics. I remember splashing around in the fresh running water. My mom prepared mainly Western foods, breads, chicken, and beef, but we ate a lot of Karoo mutton. This mutton had a different flavor because of the area where the sheep were raised. I still love mutton. On Sundays, we would get up not too early and go to the Anglican church and come home and have a big Sunday dinner. In the afternoon, my mom would often play the piano or sing, or we would walk to go visit friends. Sunday dinner mainly consisted of roast chicken. For dessert, there was custard and fruit. My first home had a metal roof and was probably average in size. My brother and I had our own bedrooms. It was small and comfortable, and it had a fireplace. Our backyard was fenced. We had a swing that hung from a tree limb, and I would swing high. I pushed my brother more than he would push me because he was ill. Our homes were not air-conditioned. We just opened the windows. Some of the windows had screens, and some didn't. In South Africa, you position your house a certain way to the northeast, regardless of the position of your piece of ground. South Africa was a good place to grow up. One thing we learned as a youngster was to mix with all different races. Our parents always instilled in us that regardless of what color people are, they're equal. I had friends of lots of different colors. There was cross-cultural communication through people, and I'm very grateful for this. High school was enjoyable for me. The subjects I was interested in were math, engineering, and drawing. High school was a separate building from the elementary school. I walked to school. Dating in high school wasn't taboo, but it wasn't encouraged either. I don't remember particularly having a girlfriend. When I was near the end of schooling, I got a job at General Motors in the assembly plant. My job was towards the completion of the car, putting on the finishing touches. My friends and I used to go to the movies quite a bit. All of the movies were in black and white. There were a lot of westerns and a lot of movies from the United Kingdom. My math teacher was the person who shaped me as a teenager. He was always open and one could go to him at any time with any simple problem to solve. He would show it to you and not make you feel stupid for asking. We were friends as well as student and teacher. I could talk to him as a friend. He was the only one I had like this. Christmas was always very important in our home. 
We would open all of our Christmas presents early Christmas morning, and then we would go to church, which was packed on Christmas Day. We would come home and have a big dinner, and then have friends in or go to their home. At the end of it all, we would have plum pudding, a very rich fruit pudding cut in small slices. In our money, we had a very small coin called a tiki, worth three pennies. These would be put into the pudding, and as a kid, we always looked for them to see how many we could get. I still have a number of them from plum puddings. Birthdays were a big celebration at our house. My mother would make a cake, and I would have a party. At 18, when I finished schooling, I left home and went to Durban. I wasn't quite certain what I was going to do, but I was offered a position in Durban to do clerical work, and I did that for a couple of years. During this time, I also got very much involved in St. John's, which is similar to the Red Cross. There was a very big movement of that up in Durban. I realized that clerical work wasn't really for me. I was always interested in chemistry and doing some type of research work. I met the director of pathology in Durban, and he got me into the laboratories where I started to train in microbiology and biochemistry. Those I took as my majors. After that, I was thinking more and more that I wanted to do more research and laboratory work, but I didn't know what line. Then I met the person in charge of medical research work. He had just come from the UK and was heading up the whole department in Natal. He said they would have something for me, parasitology and microbiology. I thought, this is really what I want to do. I gave notice to leave the clerical work, and I went to Natal College to study parasitology, microbiology, and biochemistry, a four-year course. I specialized in microbiology and biochemistry. My degree is a fellowship diploma. During the time I was there, I did a lot of field work as well, in parasitology, especially with amoebic dysentery. I was learning where the contaminations were coming in and where the people were contracting it. One day, I was talking to the professor and told him to have a look at a slide. He looked at it and confirmed it was amoebic dysentery. Yes, but this is mine, I told him. I had picked it up in my field work and had become very thin. I was put in the hospital, treated for it, and cured. When I qualified, the director of pathology for Natal asked if I would like to go to Esho, as they wanted to open up a new laboratory in that part of Zululand. While at Esho, there was quite a big outbreak of food poisoning, Salmonella and Shigella. I did the classification of the different bacteria, and there was one I couldn't place at all. The International Laboratory classified it as a new one and called it Salmonella Esho, after the town where it was discovered. Then there was a terrific outbreak of diphtheria, and I was very much involved with that as well, trying to work out what we could do to eliminate the spread. It was during that time in Esho that I met my wife, Joy. I was about 22 years of age. Joy was a year older than I and was doing her studies to become a registered nurse. She had done nursery work in England with children from birth to seven years. Joy's sister introduced us as I was boarding with her in Esho. Shortly after that, I returned to Durban and worked at King Edward Hospital doing quite a bit of research with gonococcus. I was in Durban for a year before Joy and I were married. We remained there about a year. From there, we went to Pretoria, 
where a microbiological section was being developed at the Bureau of Standards. I was asked to head up one section of that. Joy did private duty nursing in Pretoria until our son was born, and then she stayed home. Medical research asked me if I would open up a laboratory in northern Free State in Kroonstad. Kroonstad was the largest town in that area. Nearby, they discovered very rich gold mines, and that area developed rapidly. There were many workers there for gold mines, and it became a key point. I was at Kroonstad for about three years. When I got this laboratory going, people approached me from Vanderbilt Park. When I went to Vanderbilt Park in the early 50s, the steel mill was growing very rapidly. It is still in operation and exports a lot of steel to the Far East. I was there about 28 years. In 1975, I still worked at the steel mill, but the steel mill said we don't have a position for you any longer because we are an engineering place, not a research place. They more or less told me I had reached my peak and could only look forward to a pension. About this time, the refinery at Salisburg came to me and said they were having problems with jet fuel. I helped them by isolating the bacteria that attacked the aluminum tanks in aircraft. They then told me they needed me and asked if I would come be a consultant microbiologist for them. I told Joy it sounded good, but I had become comfortable with the steel industry and didn't know much about the refinery industry. I asked the children about this, and they seemed positive about the change, providing that we kept our home. I wasn't very sure about this, and it became a matter of prayer. A cousin of mine who is a senior high court judge told me it was the chance of a lifetime. I met with the board of directors at the Natriff Company in Salisburg and presented the figures on how much it would cost them to set up a good laboratory, almost a million dollars. They confirmed that they needed me and offered an engineer to work with me and supplied the laboratory I needed. I took the position, and this began to open up doors for me very rapidly. I was working on jet fuel and knew what I needed to do to satisfy the aircraft for international flights. I was working with Boeing and Airbus in France. The sugar industry opened with large exports in South Africa, and I was asked to look at the problems they were experiencing. Different companies in Europe and the UK asked me if I would work with them on projects. Dow Chemical asked me to be their consultant for South Africa. I was a consultant for the South African Air Force and responsible to the general concerning fuel issues and the design of tanks. The dean at Orlando University asked me to help with the fallout from rockets and what effect it had on bacteria. I made a good name for myself and had begun traveling every year, organizing these trips to a month or six weeks. I then became interested in kelp and seaweed from mainly around the Atlantic Ocean side of Cape Town. We developed one of the chemicals used by the textile industry to provide a brilliant color. I began negotiating with people in Germany and Belgium who were interested in this process and encouraged me to go for it. The Germans had offered to pay $1 million toward getting the process going. It was at this time that mainly the Americans had placed the embargo against South Africa. The bank said, you're sitting on a gold mine and we will help you. 
I was paying for all of these costs of the venture, but eventually my business folded because of the embargo, and I went into voluntary liquidation. I lost everything, the company, our home, everything. Friends of ours by the name of Leggett asked us to come and stay with them. They said they had a townhouse they could share with us. We then went to the friends in Pinetown. We spent that time in prayer and asking the Lord what we had to do. Two things could happen. Our whole life could be crushed and we could be bitter, or we could be positive. On returning from Bryanston, we began to feel that the Lord was telling us to be motivated to go out and motivate and train people to write a vision for their lives. We were excited, and our pastor was excited about our idea. His church was very big, with a seating capacity of 8,500. We developed a whole program and called it Living Free. Towards the end of 1990, we started our first series of lectures around the country. This opened up a new field. We did a couple of presentations in Europe and some in the United States. A few things prompted us to move to the States. One, our daughter was in the States. Also, crime was becoming very prevalent in South Africa. When we traveled by road to Cape Town, it wasn't safe. We came to Springfield, Missouri because our daughter was living here, working as an RN and pursuing her master's in counseling. She asked us to come and stay with her. This was in 1998. In my career, I don't believe I would change anything. It was very exciting. In hindsight, the embargo gave me a new concept of life through living free. It gives you new insight into people and how to help people. I'm now looking at people with, how can I help you, and not, what can you do for me? When I was busy building up the business with kelp, I was trying to get people who had clout to help me. Now I have completely changed and am trying to help others. Joy and I were married on the 20th of March, 1954. We were living in Durban. Joy had qualified as a registered nurse and was doing her midwifery training. I was a microbiologist doing research on gonococcus. We were married a hundred miles away from Durban on a mission station near the farm where Joy was born. All of our special friends traveled to the wedding. We had just over a hundred people at the wedding. Joy and I enjoyed every moment of our special day. Her brother and his wife gave us our reception. We went to Coxstead for a honeymoon in the mountains for one week and then returned to work in Durban. Our first home was a small apartment near the beach and behind Addington Hospital in Durban. We lived in Durban for about 18 months and then moved to Pretoria where I worked for the Bureau of Standards. Joy did a bit of home nursing there but when she became pregnant, she stopped nursing. Our first child was born on Friday the 13th in 1956. This was our son, Ian Trevor. Joy, Ian, and I remained in Pretoria for about three years. Graham Robin, our second son, was born in Kroonstad, where I had gone to do medical research. Graham was born on the 3rd of October, 1958. I remained in Kroonstad for three years. Our daughter, Linda Joy, was born on the 6th of March, 1960. We were living in Vanderbilt Park. My life mission began once we had lost everything. We started to pray and really sought out what the Lord wanted us to do with our lives. 
we truly felt that the Lord wasn't finished with us. At the end of December 1990, I spoke to our pastor about my idea. It was vague in my own mind, but he thought the idea was phenomenal. The concept was that we would start training people from 50 and up to really have a vision for their life. When people get to 50, the vision or dream part of their brain is rusted out. We want to get them dreaming again, and then write a vision for what they want to do with the rest of their life. Living Free was born. I could have said I was liquidated and had nothing left, but it was the beginning of a new life. When I came to the States, I met folks who had gone through a similar liquidation experience and had done nothing for ten years. My personal goal is to do a hike of a half marathon, 13 miles. I've never done that distance, but I feel I can because I regularly do five miles. I need to get someone to teach me how to improve my walking skills. When I turn 100 years old, the plan is to have a big banquet, and to get to the banquet, you have to walk three miles. That's why I'm walking all the time, because it would be terrible if I'm having a banquet and I couldn't get to it. I'm determined that at 100, I'm going to be able to walk that distance. The whole thing is attitude and what you believe. I think the Lord enables you to fulfill that. Of course, all sorts of things can happen, such as an accident, etc. But if you don't have an accident, and you get to 100, and you haven't walked and prepared for it, and you have a cane and you're shaky as a leaf, you can't do it. And that shouldn't have been. The whole thing is to keep your body active. I want to instill in the people of living free that they really have got to start living and have a purpose for life and pass that on to others. A couple in Living Free would have a goal of influencing at least 500 people. Those people will begin to change other people's lives. When I get leaders on board and get an advisory board, we will have the cream of the crop, and this will accelerate the vision of Living Free. This is an edited version of Vermutin's story. You can read each story in its entirety at thelibrary.org or by clicking the link in the description of this post. The storykeeper for Cyril Vermutin is Nan Corallo. Music is Bach Cello Suite No. 3 in C Major by Colin Carr at freemusicarchive.org under an attribution, non-commercial, no derivative, 3.0 United States license. Story excerpts edited and read by Diana Dudenhafer.